you only have a limited amount of time to negotiate with somebody like Bashir or Castro. So you have to connect right away. You have to establish a personal connection. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Bill Richardson passed away on September 1st at the age of 75. He was a long-serving member of Congress and Governor of New Mexico, former Secretary of Energy, and U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. But his most lasting impact on international affairs was his freelance work as an international hostage negotiator. He would travel in his personal capacity to places like North Korea, Burma, and to autocratic regimes around the world to help free people wrongfully detained abroad. He had a knack for negotiating with particularly nasty foreign leaders, earning him the moniker, the, quote, undersecretary of thugs. When we spoke in 2015, Richardson had recently published a book about his experiences negotiating with autocrats called How to Sweet Talk a Shark. And in our conversation, Richardson recounts stories and lessons learned from his work as a freelance diplomat dedicated to the release of hostages and political prisoners. We kicked off discussing how his unique bicultural upbringing and early experiences as a politician in New Mexico helped him develop the kinds of skills he would later deploy in negotiations with the likes of Saddam Hussein. I really appreciated this time with Bill Richardson. He was famously a very good talker, and this interview did not disappoint. So I wanted to bring this episode up from behind the paywall in remembrance of Bill Richardson. And for those of you who are more recent listeners to Global Dispatches, I started this podcast 10 years ago, and the format back then is a bit different from what it is today. I would conduct long-form interviews with people who have had interesting careers or notable experiences in foreign policy and talk with them about their life and career, often with digressions about the historic moments that intersected with their lives. Sometimes, like Bill Richardson, these individuals were better known. Sometimes they were lesser-known individuals, but with great stories to share. In all, there are about 200 of these kinds of episodes in the archives, which you can unlock by becoming a premium subscriber through Apple Podcasts. 
If you prefer to listen to the podcast on Spotify, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches and get the Spotify premium feed from there. You can also go to globaldispatches.org and sign up via Substack. Anyway, I'm really proud of these first 200 interviews. It was early days of podcasting in general, and I wanted to have evergreen long-form conversations with just interesting people, and so that's what the podcast used to be. It's, of course, changed a bit in the subsequent years to cover a bit more timely topics in international affairs, but I really do love these first 200 episodes or so. I've always had a huge fondness for Bill Richardson. I never met him in person, but I did follow his career closely, and he had a very powerful impact on international affairs and a very direct impact on the many lives of the hostages that he was able to free. So rest in peace, Governor Richardson. Here's our conversation from 2015. How early in your life or in your career did you recognize or realize that you had this knack or or talent for negotiation or maybe someone recognized in you and helped nurture it in you? How did that evolution begin? Well, the evolution began when I became a member of Congress in 1982. And I had a congressional district in New Mexico with Native Americans, Hispanics, Anglos, a very wide diversity of people and regions and businesses, conservative, liberal, moderate areas, environmentally sensitive areas, oil production. And it was an effort to try in my town meetings when I was a congressman to, instead of like having town meetings on issues, I would open the town meetings to resolutions of problems because at the time there were a lot of problems relating to water rights, land rights, and I would try to resolve the problem right there at the town meeting. This kind of collaborative effort with my constituents, I think, started me on a path of trying to be a good negotiator, trying to bring people together. So it was in my early 30s when I was elected to Congress. I speak Spanish, English. It's a district that's 43 percent Hispanic that I was able to blend languages and issues and try to resolve problems right on the spot, including individual problems, people not having their social security, et cetera. And so that was an effort to try to bring the cultures of Native Americans, Hispanics, Anglos together and resolve these problems, mainly problems that related to water, land, environment, clean air, et cetera. Had you sort of cut your teeth in negotiations sort of ahead of becoming a member of Congress? Or was it your election and being thrust into this sort of position of responsibility that suddenly maybe forced you to develop skills on the fly? I was brought up in Mexico, a Mexican mother, an American father. My mother would speak to me in Spanish. My father would speak to me in English. And we were constantly at the time relating to people of different backgrounds, different languages, different 
ethnicities, cultures. And so I suspect the ability to meld into and have friends in all of these different economic and political and ethnic cultural sectors was a start. I wasn't per se a negotiator, but you have to get along with people. You know, I wasn't quite a Mexican. I wasn't quite an American. I was sort of thrust into this very cross-cultural situation. And I suspect, I don't know if their skills, but possibly that ability came at that early age. Certainly with my parents, being bilingual, I believe, is a good attribute to negotiation and diplomacy because you learn other people's cultures, you learn to respect other cultures, other points of views, and you integrate those cultures with different languages, speaking different languages, in my case, Spanish and English. So you had a, a long career in Congress. How was it, though, that you went from being, you know, a, sort of a backbencher in, in New Mexico to being someone who was called upon to go on these international missions? I guess, what was your first big international mission where your talent was recognized by you know, higher-ups in the administration or others? Well, there were two instances. One in Burma with the Nobel laureate Aung San Suu Kyi, when she was at the time in house arrest, and I was able to persuade military leaders of the junta to ease up on her house arrest, to let her out for a while. That succeeded, and that first got me some attention. How is it that you are tapped to do that? Well, I wasn't tapped. I was able to relate to the military junta leader, a guy by the name of Kim Yunt, who I recently visited, by the way, in Burma. And he basically said to me, you know, I know you're an opponent of ours, but you seem to be sincere in wanting to help the people of Burma and wanting to find ways to ease the plight of Aung San Suu Kyi. And he gave me permission. I wasn't tapped to do that, to see her. And that kind of opened the floodgates for people saying, you know, like President Clinton used to say, bad people like Bill Richardson, so we'll send him to try to mediate or negotiate. The second time was by chance. I was a member of the House Intelligence Committee on a mission, and I was in North Korea. This was a scheduled visit. I was supposed to meet with the North Koreans, and North Koreans had heard of me that I was somebody that was reasonable. And so they gave me a visa. But when I went to North Korea, two American pilots were shot down the day I arrived. They'd crossed the DMZ and were shot down. And so the Secretary of State, Warren Christopher at the time, called me in North Korea, asked me to stay and try to negotiate the release of the two American pilots. And then I started being asked to mediate either by the administration or negotiate the release of prisoners or ceasefires by other entities, and it kind of got things started. It sounds as if, you know, this trip was pre-scheduled, but then this incident happened. Did you have a sense that you were going to be asked to stay along, and how did you sort of secure the release of these two pilots? Well, I wasn't aware, for instance, when I arrived in North Korea that these two pilots had been shot down. It wasn't until I got to my quarters, it was some VIP quarters in North Koreans that put me up in, that I called home, and I was asked right away, I think it was my wife, said, well, Secretary Christopher called, and he wants to talk to you. And so Secretary Christopher and I then connected, and he said to me, Bill, I know you're on a different mission, but I'd like you to stay 
and try to persuade the North Koreans to release our two pilots. One of the pilots that was shot down died, so I worked to get the second one released. How did I get him released? I was getting a lot of international media, and the North Koreans were feeling the pressure. I try to be strong, but at the same time respectful. And actually, a threat that I made at the end, I said, I'm not going to leave until you turn them over. And I think they basically got sick of me. It was getting very close to Christmas, as I recall. But they eventually turned them over a few days after I left. So that was... I think, an effort in persistence. And that started the connection I've had over the years with the North Koreans. I've been there on other prisoner release missions. I've been there on other efforts to try to get some negotiations on food and nuclear issues and other bilateral problems. In your most recent visit there, that was with Eric Schmidt, isn't that right, the Google CEO? That's right. And that mission, our objective was to try to get this American detainee, Kenneth Bay, released. We also were trying to introduce, Eric was, the Internet into North Korea. And the third objective was to try to get them to cool down on their missile launches and their nuclear negotiations. But I think what got the most visibility of that trip was that Kim Jong-un, the new leader, refused to see us but then agreed a couple of weeks later to see Dennis Rodman, the basketball player. So I've been taking quite a bit of ribbing (laughs) over that incident. That anecdote, I think, speaks to something interesting that I'd love to ask you about, which is sort of the value of the sort of freelance diplomat. You know, I take it when you went to North Korea most recently, you were not there as part of an official U.S. delegation. You were there on your own behalf, as, you know, Dennis Rodman was as well. But are there advantages or disadvantages of doing things sort of freelance style as opposed to part of, you know, an official delegation? There are advantages for being a freestyle diplomat. I try in most cases to be connected to an administration or a State Department effort, but there are times when I believe out-of-the-box diplomacy by NGOs, by uh, the Vatican, by UN special envoys, by citizens that know what they're doing can play a valuable role. And I felt with North Korea that this was an important role because I think official channels weren't working. And I've had experience with the North Koreans before. So there are pluses and minuses to being a freestyle diplomat. But I think Jimmy Carter has shown he can be effective. Uh, Jesse Jackson myself. There are others that I'm sure we're not the darlings of the Department of State, but I think there are instances where there is value for this out-of-the-box diplomacy. And I think right now, with the North Koreans, with countries like Iran, with groups that are in Africa right now that are harmful to not just American, but international interests. Sometimes the role of the diplomat is important. For instance, in Venezuela, I think a useful effort is being played now at mediation by some Vatican representatives. How is that manifesting itself? Well, there are Vatican representatives there mediating between the opposition and the Maduro government, and tensions have eased a bit. There's no mediation. There's no agreement on the future course of the country, but I think the violence has de-escalated. So you alluded to groups in Africa. I'm wondering if you're sort of alluding to Boko Haram, have lots of experience in negotiating the release of hostages. I guess, how would you approach that situation? 
Well, the problem with Boko Haram is they're a declared terrorist group, but dedicated to violence. But I think the first option has to be the Nigerian government with the help of American technology and some of the American intelligence efforts. Unfortunately, it may not lead to a peaceful solution, but I think eventually some kind of dialogue as many have attempted, for instance, like with the FARC in Colombia, I try to do that to get some prisoners released. Others may be involved with Boko Haram. I think it's too early a stage of a movement to know how you can find ways to get to them other than violently. But I think you can't preclude that. I've had experience negotiating with rebel leaders in the Sudan, with the leader of the Sudan, Bashir, releasing prisoners and others, and I've had some success. So my point is that negotiation, dialogue, connecting with the other person, no matter how evil they are, finding ways to blend personally, to respect other points of view, to find ways that you're connecting personally to that negotiating adversary you have, no matter how evil there is, sometimes works. And I've had some success there, especially with people like Saddam Hussein and Fidel Castro and on, on a number of issues. This brings up something that is apparent throughout your book, which is the role of humor and how you try to you know, tell jokes or make some zingers to try to move negotiations in, in a tangible way. Could you describe, I guess, some of your more successful attempts at cracking jokes and why you thought it was necessary to do so? Well, when you enter negotiations with many of these dictators, they're stone-faced, they want to intimidate you, they want to get the upper hand, and sometimes injecting a little humor, like, you know, in Egypt with some of the Mubarak regime saying, all right, so is this a site where a lot of the torture took place, where you took people's fingernails out, and you're, all of a there's a dead silence <laughs> But then they start laughing. And you're you referring know, to, uh, you said that to Omar Suleiman, right? I the did, feared I and did. famed right-hand man of Mubarak. You know, he flinched at first, but then he started laughing. I did the same with the leader of a rebel group in the Sudan. I did the same with Fidel Castro. You know, what, said, oh, yeah. what did you say to the rebel leader in Sudan? And, and sort of why did you think it was necessary to say that? Well, I thought it was necessary because he started out asking for a ransom of three uh, hostages for $10 million. And I said, you know, $10 million, we can buy your whole camp and make you into a first-rate military power. I'm not going to do that. I said, how about a jeep? which we ended up trading a lot of the hostages for a Land Rover and some medical equipment. Who, who were those hostages? There were three Red Cross workers. One was an American, one was a Kenyan, and a third was an Australian woman. This was about 14 years ago. And that actually, your your success in releasing those Red Cross hostages led to another success in, in Sudan where you sort of negotiated directly with Omar al-Bashir. Is that right? That's right. And that was for the Chicago Tribune journalist, and two of his aides from Chad by the name of Paul Salopek, and his two aides were from Chad. And I used humor there because Bashir, who I had met with before, said, you know, I'm going to work with you because 14 years ago when you got the Red Cross hostages out, you treated me with respect and you thanked me. So I'm going to give you Paul Salopek. And I remember saying... Mr. President, I need to get the three out. And the two other 
Chadians were black. And Bashir said, no, you only get Salafic. The Chadians are enemies of Sudan. They're hostile. No, I said, Mr. President, I'm a politician. How can I get the white guy out, Salafic, and not bring the two blacks? You and I are politicians. He stared at me, and he broke out laughing. And he said, okay, take them all. So I got them all. And so I guess, you know, you're obviously, you know, absolutely aware of what you're doing and aware of how you're trying to appeal. I mean, is is your goal to try to just make some sort of personal connection to these otherwise, you know, horrendous figures? I mean, you know, Bashir is wanted for genocide by the, you know, International Criminal Court. Yes, you have to connect personally. You only have a limited amount of time to negotiate with somebody like Bashir or Castro. So you have to connect right away. You have to establish a personal connection. You have to show them that you're humble, that you're not the big American trying to overpower. You have to show cultural and all kinds of respect to achieve your goal, which is a good one, which is the release of a human being or a ceasefire or a a positive outcome. The good news about dealing with a dictator is that the dictator can make the decision. So if you appeal to the dictator, the dictator doesn't have to go to his or her Congress or his or her parliament or cabinet. They can just turn over the goods right there. So that's the advantage of negotiating with the dictator. That's about the only one. Well, is the disadvantage, though, that, you know, the dictator has that power, but you as either, you know, Bill Richardson acting alone or as, you know, official U.S. delegate, you know, you don't have that power. You can't make concessions on behalf of the president. If they're asking for something in return, how do you sort of manage their expectations? You're honest with them. You say up front, look, like I said to Saddam Hussein or I said to Bashir, if you turn over these hostages, the U.S. government isn't going to applaud you or even thank you. You're going to get good international press for about a day or two. You've done the right thing. You don't need these hostages anymore. You've extracted all the goods that you have from them. So you try to be honest, but say the upside is that you've done the right thing and you'll get good press. And you'll get good press in the United States, which might lead to a little bit of an easing of tension. But I think you're honest with them. You say, look, I'm not coming on behalf of the government. I'm not coming bearing goods from the U.S. government. I'm just going to be honest with you. This is what you're going to get out of it. And foreign leaders and bad guys, they like honest talk. And they probably, in their minds, by agreeing to meet with you, think, well, there's a possibility and I might release these prisoners to this guy. So I think being honest is the best way you achieve results when you have limited cards. So you talked about sort of when humor has helped you. Have there been times or instances where it's backfired, where your attempt to make that human connection or crack that joke just did not have its intended effect? No, but I have made mistakes in negotiations. One was in Cuba about four years ago. I tried to secure the release of Alan Gross, an American contractor. I was not negotiating on behalf of the U.S. government, but I had sort of implicit support, and and the U.S. government had told me there were prepared to take some steps if gross were released. So I had a little bit of a cachet. But then when the Cubans, I thought the negotiations were going in a positive direction before I arrived in Cuba. I thought I was going to make a deal. Then all of a sudden the Cubans changed the parameters 
And what happened was I lost my cool. I headed back to the hotel after having a terrible negotiating session. Instead of going to my room and thinking about what I was going to do, there were barrages of press, and I was angry, and I made some press statements that contributed to the Cubans basically shutting down the negotiations. So that wasn't humor, but that was, in the past, I've used the press on a positive way. But, you know, there are mistakes in negotiations. You can't try to upstage or pressure the other side without consequences. You have to do it subtly and intelligently. How is it that a situation presents itself in which you, as governor of New Mexico, for example, decide to go travel halfway across the world to try to release a hostage or try to secure some sort of agreement with an unsavory character? How do these situations come up in the first place? Well, they come up, for instance, with Salopec. I usually, for instance, don't engage in trying to secure a release of a hostage unless the family asks me, the family of the individual. And in this case, Salopec's family and the Chicago Tribune, where he was a reporter, asked me to intervene. So I took a few days from being governor to secure his release in Sudan. In other instances, what happens is because I've been able to do this in the past, I get requests from families of prisoners around the world. I have a little foundation in New Mexico that is involved in some of these negotiations on prisoners. We have a little funding. And so at no charge, as long as I'm officially asked by families, I participate in trying to be helpful to families. And there have been a lot of instances that we haven't publicized where we've been able to help families get their family members back in some way. Does it like pretty much always require you traveling somewhere or can you? No, okay. no not always, but in most cases, yes, but not always. Phone calls, a lot of meetings with third parties, but no, it doesn't always require a trip. Turning sort of the clock back a little bit, when you became the ambassador to the UN, how had you applied those kind of skills to negotiating at a more formal setting like the United Nations? Well, I was very early when President Clinton asked me to be U.N. ambassador. I just secured the release of the hostages in the Sudan, the three red hostages. Mm -hmm. But I vividly remember a conversation I had with Madeleine Albright right after that, after she was named Secretary of State, at the same time I was named U.N. ambassador, where she basically said to me, Bill, now you're an official spokesman. You can't meet with these bad guys anymore without telling me you're telling the government these are now you're a member of the National Security Council. So don't go talking to the people from Iran or Cuba or North Korea without telling me. So I remember that very vividly. But I did right away as U.N. ambassador get very involved in negotiations with the Congo, with Kabila, with the leader of the Congo. Uh, help me out. Mobutu. Uh, Right. Yeah. This is 1997, probably. I think it was 98. Yeah. 98, but yeah, 97, 98. And so I was put right smack in those negotiations. And I was the American official in charge of telling President Mobutu that the United States wasn't supporting him anymore. After decades. For Kabila to come in. Yeah. No, I remember that. Too. So how actually take me into how, how did that uh, conversation happen? I mean, the U.S. have been supporting him for years and years and years, and, and you have to deliver the bad news. How does that happen? 
Well, it wasn't an easy conversation. I remember going into the palace with Mobutu. He was alone. He was very regally dressed. He had a gold cane. I had two of my aides. And I remember being very clear. My talking points were very clear. It was something like, Mr. President, we would like you to go into exile. We will help you get out. We will have an airplane for you. We think Kabila is about to come into the Kinshasa. We don't want bloodshed. We're asking you to leave, and we're withdrawing our support. He looked at me, and there was silence. And I remember I thought his cane started moving. I thought he was going to hit me with his cane, <laughs> but he didn't. He was a very graceful guy. He uh, basically said, Mr. Ambassador, I've been a long-time friend of the United States. This is no way to treat a friend. I remember saying, Mr. President, it's a difficult message, but I have to give it to you. Anyway, he didn't quite agree right then to leave, but he agreed a few days later. Surely this should not have come to a huge surprise for him, though, right? Or, or did you get? No. were you under the impression that he was shocked by this? Well, he was shocked with, I think, the clarity of my statement. I believe that he already knew that his days were numbered, but I'm not convinced that he had decided already to leave. I think he wanted to put up a last stand. But I think when we told him that we weren't going to back him, I think he realized he had to make other arrangements. And thankfully, Mandela and the South Africans were ready to help. And they're the first ones that took him in their country and protected him, put him into exile. And so just to, to wrap things up, what's next for you? I mean, you've been out of office now for a year and a half or two years. And are you going to continue your international work? You mentioned that you have a center and a foundation to support this kind of work. Yes, I'm going to continue my, I have a center for international engagement in Santa Fe where we work on issues relating to countries like North Korea, Cuba, We've trained the parliament in Burma and business leaders there. We've had a sports program in Cuba. We also have a program with protecting elephants from poachers and protecting their ivory and protecting elephants in Africa. I have a foundation in New Mexico with Robert Redford, the actor conservationist to protect wild horses. I'm on the speech circuit, paid speech circuit. I work for an international communications company called APCO sure. on a consulting basis. I'm on several boards. I also am on the Refugee International Board and the World Resources Institute, an environmental organization. So I'm still pretty active. I'm, I'll stay active, but not in government. I'm very happy living in Santa Fe and being able to make these other hopefully good contributions and continue trying to help people around the world that are political prisoners. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.